earlier this summer, the boys and I installed two in-ground basketball hoops. We did one at our place, and then we ended up doing one at a at one of our neighbors. Um, we had to dig for the concrete base. We had to uh, assemble the the main pole. We had to lift the glass backboard into place. Uh, fortunately, we were provided with a manual that gave us guidance along the way. It told us how deep the base needed to be and how many bags of concrete were needed to support the assembly. It told us what order the parts needed to be assembled, what screws and washers to use, when to tighten the appropriate bolts. Uh, this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to suggest to you that Matthew provides a handbook or a training manual for those who wish to follow Jesus. Now before we can get into the specifics of Matthew's Gospel, we need to get our bearings. Uh, we have a major gap between the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings. About 400 years have passed. So I want to just uh, think through what's going on here in biblical history. What, what was the historical situation? The last historical book in the Old Testament is Nehemiah. And there we read that many of the Jewish people were restored to Israel after the exile. But they never regained their former glory. Persia was the world superpower at that time. And Israel, the people of Israel, continued to be under the thumb of foreign oppressors for 400 years. And now they find themselves under the thumb of the mighty Roman Empire, the largest and most dominant of all the previous empires. What was the spiritual situation with God's people? Well, the period between Malachi, the last prophet, and Matthew is often referred to as the 400 silent years. So there was no direct communication from God during this time. And there was just a, a sense of great longing. Uh, several groups came to the surface during these years. And I think they each tried to respond to uh, the, the plight of the Jewish people. I mean, how do you live when you're under the thumb of a foreign oppressor, when you're in a, an ungodly, secular uh, society and culture? And each of these groups tried to sort of answer that question in a different way. Uh, first of all, there were the Pharisees. Uh, the name Pharisee literally means separated ones. They were the uh, religious conservatives. <laughs> uh, they placed an emphasis on the strict observance of God's law, the law of Moses. And they even developed a complex system of additional requirements. So they wanted to remain separate from this culture. Uh, then there were the Sadducees. Uh, they were the religious liberals. Maybe we think of them as the mainline Protestants who have tried to capitulate to the culture. Uh, they have tried to adopt uh, many of the aspects of the secular culture. The Sadducees denied the existence of angels. They denied the, the coming resurrection of the dead that was spoken of in the scriptures. And so they really um, 
settled in with the Roman occupation. <laughs> and uh, generally, uh, they were wealthy and influential people. They they sort of benefited from the Roman occupation and, and just sort of took advantage of it. Uh, and then there were the zealots. Uh, the, this, this might be like the militia, right? They were political revolutionaries who chafed under Roman authority. Each of these groups had a particular vision for how to achieve peace, right? How to live with foreign oppressors. Separation, capitulation, or revolt. So all of these groups, I think, speak to the sense of longing. Things were not well with the people of Israel. Uh, why did God choose this particular time to send the Savior into the world? I think this is a fascinating question as well. Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 4 reads, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Well, what does that mean? Why would God choose to send his son at a time when the Romans were uh, oppressing the nation of Israel? Well, Greek had become a global trade language which allowed for communication across cultures. So language is always a problem, right, when it comes to communication. And everybody spoke a common language, um, or could at least get by with Greek. Uh, and so that was a major advantage. Uh, also, there was a series of roads that allowed for ease of travel, flow of information. And there was a prevailing peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which uniquely allowed for the spread of the gospel. So Roman rule was oppressive to the people of Israel, but that rule, that might, kept everything in check and so uh, there was able to be uh, learning and culture and things that could develop and certainly that was um, advantageous for the spread of the gospel so this is sort of the scene a little bit now what about Matthew specifically or the gospel accounts Matthew is one of four gospel accounts in one sense, Matthew tells the same account of Jesus as the other gospel writers. His birth, his preparation for ministry, his public ministry in Galilee, his ministry in the surrounding regions, his journey to Jerusalem, and the final climactic week of his life centered on his death, burial, and resurrection. Like the other gospel writers, Matthew points to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is God's authorized representative in the world. This is why he begins with a genealogy and traces Jesus' connection to Abraham and to David. Like the other gospel writers, Matthew points to Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, statement here of his deity mentioned 14 times in Matthew's gospel so Matthew uh, certainly speaks and writes in line with the other gospel writers but each gospel writer brought a distinct perspective and focus one of the books on my shelf is entitled a harmony of the gospels it's a very interesting little volume you open it up and there are four columns that allow you to read the four gospel accounts side by side. Uh, 
But that is not the way the Gospels are to be read. Ancient biographies were meant to be read the whole way through, rather than moving from passage in uh, from a passage in one book to a passage in another. Each of the four Gospels was written separately to different readers and was meant to be read on its own terms. So Matthew, who was Matthew? And what were his unique contributions? Matthew, also called Levi, was a Jewish man, but he also was a tax collector. This was the major asterisk next to Matthew's name. Tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people because they collaborated with the hated Romans. Matthew had been collecting taxes for Rome. So he would have been viewed as a traitor of the worst sort. Matter of fact, tax collecting was listed alongside prostitution as illegitimate occupations for Jews. But despite this baggage, Jesus called Matthew to be one of his 12 disciples. That's good news for us, that uh, uh, we, we, we can follow Christ regardless of our background, right? Uh, I find it interesting that Jesus also called Simon the Zealot, a man on the opposite end of the political spectrum. Matthew had worked for the Romans. Uh, Simon the Zealot was, uh, was, was determined to resist the Roman occupation. So I have to think that the sparks could have certainly flown between these two individuals, and yet they found common ground in Jesus. Jesus called both of them to serve on his leadership team. As a tax collector, Matthew would have been educated, uniquely suited, to present Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. So uh, Matthew's, Matthew's education uniquely prepared him for the task. Matthew quoted from the Old Testament nearly a hundred times. He wanted to demonstrate that Jesus did not contradict the Jewish scriptures. Rather, Jesus fulfilled the Jewish scriptures. Perhaps the most uh, distinct element of Matthew's gospel is his emphasis on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And he presents Jesus as the rightful king of that kingdom. The phrase kingdom of God is used 50 times in Matthew's gospel, far more than the other gospel accounts. The genealogy traces Jesus' claims to the throne. Matthew actually traces the genealogy through Joseph, tracing his legal right to the throne. And we know that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. And Luke traces the genealogy through Mary. But Matthew is very interested in the legal claim to the throne. Of course, there are the Magi who come from the East, right, to recognize the birth of the king. There is the showdown with the powerful King Herod, uh, who was the current ruler in that region. John the Baptist comes as a herald, right, going out before 
uh, announcing the arrival of the king. And from the outset of his public ministry, Jesus himself declared that the kingdom of God was at hand. Chapter 4, verse 17, and verse 23. This was the, the essence, the summary of his message. And certainly Jesus would come as a king and defeat Israel's enemies, just not the way that they expected. He didn't defeat Rome. Instead, he defeated their greater enemies, sin and death. He didn't conquer by means of a sword. Instead, he conquered by means of a cross. Well, I told you that Matthew was a training manual for the Christian life, for the follower of Jesus. Matthew developed this theme of the kingdom of God through five of Jesus' longer discourses. Matthew interspersed instruction and narrative and used a consistent pattern to mark the end of each discourse, saying, when Jesus had ended these sayings, uh, that little phrase comes at the end of each one of these five discourses. And so they provide uh, a means of looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Mark, the Gospel of Mark was meant to be read quickly as a brief overview, but Matthew was meant to be studied more as a training manual for Jesus' disciples. So five things here that are communicated. I just want to kind of quickly move through these five discourses. That'll be our outline this morning. Uh, and note what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. And number one, the requirements of the kingdom. The requirements of the kingdom. So this first discourse begins in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And Jesus had come declaring the good news of the kingdom, healing people, and casting out demons. And it wasn't long before the crowds began to gather around him. They wanted to be part of this kingdom of peace and shalom. And in response to this surging popularity, Jesus expounded the entry requirements in what is called the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because he went up on the mountainside to teach. The sermon begins with a concise statement about how one enters the kingdom, and it ends with a sober warning that many will be excluded. It begins with the Beatitudes, right? The pathway to blessing. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And there's that first Beatitude in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people who will enter the kingdom are beggars. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty and come with open hands. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by human merit. Jesus makes it very clear that he has not come to remove the requirements of the law. He has not come to lower the bar. 
He calls them to the highest standard of righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to describe the type of righteousness that God requires. Not just an outward righteousness, but a righteousness of the heart. Think about all that's communicated in this message. You have heard it said that you should not murder. But I tell you that even if you speak a hateful word, you have murdered that person in your heart. So Jesus drives at uh, this true heart righteousness. This is what is required. How can anyone meet that level of righteousness? And this is part of what's happening in this sermon. Jesus is bringing us to the end of ourselves. He's pointing out and exposing our sin. And he's pointing us to his own greater righteousness. The only one who could satisfy these demands was Jesus himself. And he would satisfy God's righteous demands. We're told in Romans that Christ's righteousness was able to be credited to our account through faith. So again, the kingdom is not something we earn as a wage. It is something we receive as a gift. Jesus closes this particular discourse with a warning. The road to life is narrow and only a few will find it. And Jesus warns that many will be self-deceived. Here in Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So many think that they're part of the kingdom, but they will be excluded. They say the right words, Lord, Lord, but their true allegiance is revealed by their actions. They claim to be followers of Jesus, but their lifestyle and their priorities and moral choices reveal that they are not followers of Jesus. So we see here that this... this spiritual poverty, this coming to to God, this being poor in spirit, uh, this genuine type of faith uh, involved in salvation uh, produces a changed life. I don't know if you uh, uh, have had that experience of walking through the the airport terminals and, and airport security. My dad hates airport security. He, that thing things in him every time and he's taken off his belt buckle and the fingernail clippers and he's about naked walking through that thing and he's vowed he's never going to fly again you know that's uh that's frustrating uh but that contraband is not coming through right they're gonna they're gonna find it and i think that the contraband that is not allowed in the kingdom of god is pride and self-righteousness. The alarm beeps every time. (laughs) And the person who thinks they have accomplished and earned entry into the kingdom will be sadly disappointed.
you must come through the narrow gate of repentance and removing every vestige of pride and be in a position to receive God's grace by faith. So my friends, are you part of the kingdom? (laughs) Have you come to the end of yourself? Is your life marked by genuine faith and repentance? The requirements of the kingdom, the entry requirements of the kingdom. Well, there's a second discourse in Matthew chapter 10. And here Jesus talks about the responsibilities of the kingdom. The responsibilities of the kingdom. Jesus continued to uh, proclaim the good news of the kingdom throughout all the towns in Galilee. And he identified 12 disciples and authorized them to speak on his behalf. Jesus did not select those who were particularly intelligent or charismatic. By and large, it was a simple group of rural blue-collar workers. Jesus provided them with clear instructions. They didn't have to come up with their own message. He gave them the message that they were to relay. The kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the same message that Jesus himself had spoken. And this is the message that they were called to declare. The king is coming. Put down your weapons and bow the knee. Some would receive the message. Others would reject it. He warned them that they would encounter opposition and struggle. They would be flogged. They would be arrested. They would be shunned by their families. In the midst of the struggle, Jesus reminded them of the presence and providence of God. Urges them not to be afraid. He promises great reward to those who would serve faithfully. Of course, these instructions are all reiterated in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. It was a few years ago when we uh, uh, celebrated with Karina Barber her U.S. citizenship. And I was struck with the, the, the stringent nature of the requirements in the citizenship process. Uh, There were many questions that Karina had been asked that I'm not sure I would have been able to answer well. They were a bit foggy in my mind about branches of government and so on and so forth. But concisely, uh, those who wish to be U.S. citizens are called upon to obey the law, to pay taxes, to serve on a jury when summoned, to register with the Selective Service. President Roosevelt said it well, the first requisite or requirement of a good citizen in this republic of ours is that he shall be able and willing to pull his weight. So we do not enter into the kingdom by human effort. right? We've just said that. Those who receive the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit, the beggars. The kingdom is given as a gift, not as a wage. But those who have been brought into the kingdom uh, have been given certain responsibilities to live as citizens of that kingdom. And so I ask you, have you embraced the responsibilities of a kingdom citizen? Have you come to understand the true nature of your mission in the world? Our task is not to shape a message that people will like. Our task is not to manipulate a response or cause people to make an emotional decision. Our task is not to transform the culture. We are to announce God's coming kingdom of peace and call people to submit to Jesus as the rightful king. And we leave the results to God.
Our culture has come to value health and safety above all else, but Jesus has not promised us a life of ease, pleasure, and security. Instead, he's called us to a vital but dangerous mission. It is a message that will be violently opposed. People do not want to surrender their autonomy to another king. They want to be their own king. (laughs) We are to face these dangers and carry out our mission. Declare the good news with confidence because Jesus has promised us his presence. The third discourse in chapter 13 addresses the nature of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom. Jesus' popularity was at an all-time high. So many people were crowding around him that he had to get into the boat and put out a little bit from shore so that he would not be crushed by the press of the crowd. The people were excited. They were looking for a sudden, violent revolution. They wanted the kingdom now. There were several occasions where it actually says they wanted to make him king. And he slipped away from them, right? He diffused the situation. But the kingdom was not going to unfold in the way that they expected. And Jesus did not want his followers to be disillusioned. So he gave a series of parables to describe the nature of his kingdom. Uh, first, the, the message of the kingdom is like a seed sown in the heart. Right Here's the parable of the soils. The one who truly receives the message of the kingdom will eventually produce fruit. But here's the key. The kingdom grows from the inside out. Instead of being installed from the outside in. (laughs) That's something we need to get a handle on. God doesn't just work by shock and awe and and external restraints. God is bringing about a change in the hearts and lives of people. This is how his kingdom is unfolding. Uh, Secondly, the, the kingdom is like a man who sowed good seed in his field and went away. But then his enemy came later and sowed, sowed weeds in the field. You see, God's kingdom will exist alongside of the enemy's kingdom. Matter of fact, the people ask in the parable, right, should we go and pull out the weeds? And God says, no, if you, if you pull out, the farmer says, if you go and pull out the weeds, you're, you're, you run the risk of pulling out the weed as well. Let the, the wheat and the weeds grow together and we will separate them at the harvest. So that too was a a, a different way of thinking about the kingdom. The kingdom would grow alongside, the kingdom of God would grow alongside of the kingdom of this world. Three, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It starts small and grows slowly, but it eventually becomes a tall tree where the birds can find rest. Number four, the kingdom is like yeast. It doesn't look like much, but it will penetrate and transform the entire lump of dough. And Jesus goes on and tells a series of additional parables here to communicate the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is a mixed bag. It is a work in progress. The fullness of the kingdom will not be accomplished immediately. One of my favorite treats is jello. Anybody else here like jello? 
I don't care the flavor. You can bring me any kind of Jello. I like Jello. Uh, but what is the trick with Jello? Jello is a little different than most other snacks, isn't it? You see, with Jello, you have to wait. I, I think, oh, I have a hankering for Jello. But then I've got to go mix it up, and I've got to put it in the fridge for like four hours. You can't rush Jello. <laughs> and in a similar way, you can't rush the kingdom of God. It would not and does not happen immediately. It unfolds gradually in the hearts and lives of men and women. So, my friends, are you frustrated or disillusioned with the apparent lack of progress in God's kingdom? Do you sometimes think that nothing is happening or that God's kingdom is actually losing? Jesus wants us to view the kingdom with eyes of faith. He provides a lens here to help his followers understand the nature of the kingdom so that we will not be disillusioned or discouraged. God's kingdom is progressing. Make no mistake about it. But it might not look like we think it should. The fourth discourse is recorded here in Matthew chapter 18. And here... Jesus addresses the values of the kingdom. The values of the kingdom. Matthew 18, verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among him. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So this particular discourse is triggered by a question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom, right? Do you hear the value uh, statement there? What, what is most valuable in the kingdom? What does God uh, really value. And Jesus draws a child, a little child, into the center of the circle and says, this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he goes even further to say, unless you become like this little child, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> See, a child, uh, a child is not too proud to receive help. Children are needy, and they're willing and, and ready to receive help. And we need to become like little children in this regard. And we need to share God's concern for the childlike. Right? God is concerned. He values uh, the, the, the children, the needy. And we need to share that concern. That means we ought to have a concern for other people. Uh, Jesus introduces here a, this ethic of, of love and concern that ought to characterize God's people. We're called to love, to look out for the well-being of others. In chapter 18, verses 6 through 9, Jesus makes it very clear that we, we, should, we should be very careful not to lead others into sin. Uh, 
It would be better to have a large millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble, right? And conversely, we ought to be going out of our way to help safeguard people and rescue people from danger. That's where we go into this whole passage, the the church discipline passage, right? In, In verses 15 through 20, where if we see someone, one of our brothers and sisters struggling or in danger, we go to them and we, we seek to rescue them from danger. We are to care for one another as family. There's so much family terminology here. Reference, obviously, to God as our Father and to the little children and to, to brothers and sisters. That's the nature of our relationship together. These are the values of the kingdom. Well, Scott and and Colleen Christie's son-in-law, Michael Rogers, is an Air Force pararescueman staff sergeant. He was part of a special forces unit in Afghanistan in 2019. And after an explosion uh, in the midst of his unit, Rogers went into harm's way to rescue and to treat seven wounded men from his unit. For his efforts, he received the 2021 Air Force Sergeants Association Pitsenbarger Award. Well, my friends, we, we are called to this kind of radical love, to step into harm's way, to rescue uh, our, our brothers and our sisters. And so I ask you, have, have you embraced the values of the kingdom? Following Jesus is not a solo expedition. Are you committed to the local church? And do you have a view of the church as family? Uh, this is one of two passages here in Matthew's Gospel where the word church is used. We're being introduced to a new reality, a corporate reality. Do you view the church as family, as critical to uh, the life of Uh, to to your life as a follower of Jesus? Uh, Are you cultivating the type of relationships where you can help a spiritual sibling who is caught in sin? The fifth discourse is recorded in Matthew 24, 25. And here Jesus addresses the future of the kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So this last dialogue was triggered by an offhanded comment. The disciples were leaving Jerusalem and walking up to the Mount of Olives. And uh, from the Mount of Olives you get a great view, a panoramic view of the, the city of Jerusalem, particularly of the Temple Mount. And so they were commenting to Jesus and pointing out, wow, look at, look at, look at the beauty of this structure. And, and the temple was beautiful. Herod had renovated the temple uh, 
and some of the stones were f over 40 feet long and 11 feet high. I mean, it was an immense, grand structure. And so the disciples are impressed by this. And they're pointing out, oh, Jesus, did you see this? Did you see that? And Jesus says to them, the temple will be destroyed. <laughs> There's a coming day of judgment. And so they want to know more. They specifically want to know uh, when these things will happen and what will be the signs that accompany these events. You know, how will we recognize it? And Jesus does describe uh, in general some of the things that would mark this coming time of judgment. And he does describe his return in power and glory to gather his people but he does not give them specific times. right? He makes it clear that no one knows the day or the hour. They were concerned about when these things would happen. Jesus was more concerned with how they were going to live before those things happened. One commentator said it this way, they are concerned about when he will renew his presence with them. He is concerned about how they will live in his absence. So we have all of these instructions. Stand firm, keep watch, be ready, be faithful. Jesus said that many would not be prepared, just as many were not prepared for the flood that came during the, during the days of Noah. Right? People were carrying on with life, enjoying banquets and parties and weddings, right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. So Jesus says, don't worry about the timing. Just be ready. <laughs> Just be ready. And so I ask you, my friends, are you prepared for the return of the King when he returns suddenly, will he find you to be one of his loyal subjects? Are you living in light of his return? Are you allowing the return of Christ to shape your worldview and your values and your priorities and your lifestyle? Because he's coming in an hour that we do not know. Well, we started off talking about my experience building some uh, basketball hoops with my boys this spring. Uh, the first one we did at our house, I used the manual quite religiously and followed every detail. The second one, I was a little more confident, and so uh, I actually missed a step. Uh, when I got all finished, the basket would not raise and lower like it was supposed to. And so I had to go do a partial dismantling and redo that step and go back to the manual again. It really wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe cost me an extra half hour, 45 minutes. But in other areas of life, when we disregard the manual, we find ourselves in a lot of trouble. Right? If we disregard the manual on marriage, it can cause a great deal of heartache and grief. Right? If we disregard God's manual a training manual for sex, uh, it can be destructive in so many ways. We disregard training manual on, on how to resolve conflict, or we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble and experience a lot of broken relationships. And when we disregard God's training manual for discipleship, for what it is to follow Christ, 
uh, we find ourselves disillusioned, discouraged, and uh, and 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 just cut off from God's design for His kingdom citizens. And so I commend to you the book of Matthew as a training manual that ought to be utilized uh, for the Christian life. It again helps us to remember the requirements of the kingdom, the entry requirements of the kingdom, the responsibilities of the kingdom, what God has called, what Jesus has called us to, the nature of the kingdom, how the kingdom is going to unfold, the values of the kingdom. What characterizes the relationships within the kingdom and the future of the kingdom? Christ's return. I pray that God will help us to be and to live as his kingdom citizens.